At the beginning of this message today, I'd like to ask you a question. I don't want you to respond to it out loud, but I'd like you to think about it. And I'd like you to keep this question in the back of your mind as we walk through the message today. The question is this. In what specific ways is your life being lived differently than it would if you were not a follower of Jesus? In the church, there's a teaching making the rounds that's become very popular because it makes little demands. But this teaching is the opposite of the plain message of the Bible. This teaching that's making the round says that once you are saved, then it doesn't really matter how you live because grace has you covered. As a result, there seems to be a disconnect between the concept of a conversion experience and the incarnation of a Christian life and lifestyle. That simply means that there is a failure of modern-day believers to behave like believers. Survey after survey tells us that there is almost no difference between the lifestyle of the sinners in the world and the saints in the church. Instead of the church having an influence on the culture, too often the culture is bleeding into and influencing the church. When you come to the letter of Paul to Titus, you find that this isn't just a 21st century problem. It's been around almost as long as the church has been around. What you have in this letter is an apostle of the church writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to a church leader and pastor. He's telling him some of the principles to teach and instill in his congregation. Crete was notorious in that day for being a rough place. It was known for its clubbing and promiscuity where sex and drugs and drinking proliferated. In verse 12 of chapter 1, the Apostle Paul quotes one of their own writers who de whose description of the people of this island is, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. <clears throat> the church that had been established on this island was made up of these rowdy Cretans who had been saved by the grace of God. Unfortunately, they, like so many today, were having a hard time leaving the old lifestyle to which they were accustomed, so the apostle sends one of his most trusted companions, a man by the name of Titus. Titus was a Gentile convert. From all we can gather, he had come to faith in Jesus through the preaching of Paul. He seemed to have a particular gift for being able to relate to the Gentile churches and to help bring them into alignment with the doctrines and practices of Christian faith. One person has described Titus as something like Paul's secretary of state. He was Paul's troubleshooter, especially to the Gentile converts. Now here he is in Crete, sent by Paul in order to bring order to the church and teach them both proper doctrine and proper practice. When Paul writes this letter, he begins by reminding these new believers that they are part of a new family. They became a member of this family in the same way that you and I became a member of the family of God, by grace and by grace alone. 
Now that they are members of God's family, they have become partakers of the life of the Spirit of God. The Spirit within them is now what guides and informs their new life. This life in the Spirit is marked by certain principles that God expects them to practice. The principles Paul lays out for Titus and this church on the island of Crete haven't changed over the years, but they remain applicable for God's church today. Right up front, there's something about which you need to be very, very clear. You don't behave a certain way in order to gain God's favor. There is nothing you can ever do that will make you good enough to receive God's favor. There is nothing you can ever do that will build up enough brownie points for God to look with favor on you. His blessings, His favor, His salvation, his divine touch, his spiritual gifts, they are all a result of one thing, his grace. You don't live a certain way in order to obtain God's favor. Instead, the change in the way you live once you surrender your life to Jesus is a response to the grace you have received. Changing your behavior doesn't gain you entrance into the family of God. Rather, it is your new way of living under the lordship of Jesus that keeps you in right relationship with the Heavenly Father and with other members of the family. It is evidence that you're now part of the family of faith. If you are a member of God's forever family, then there are certain markers that ought to be present in your life. There is uh, distinctive fruit that will be evident. There are principles to practice. There are guidelines by which to live. There are boundaries to observe. There are certain traits that will distinguish you from the rest of the world as a member of the band of the redeemed. And in this passage that forms our text, the apostle talks not only about saving grace, but he talks about schooling grace. He says in verses 11 and 12, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us. It is this schooling that comes after saving. The same grace that saves you is the same grace that schools you. It teaches, it educates It informs, it trains. Grace will not simply save you and then leave you to live any way you want, but grace will continue to work in your life to instruct you how to live now that you are saved. The first thing grace will teach you is to leave the sinful life. He says in verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. There has never been a soul so wicked, a heart so hard, or a mind so corrupt that Jesus couldn't save. But when Jesus saves you, his message to you is the same as it was to the woman caught in the act of adultery in John chapter 8, verse 11. Neither do I condemn you, Go and sin no more. 
The message of Jesus is consistent in its instruction to leave the sinful life. That's what it means in Matthew 16, 24, when Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's the meaning of Matthew 7 and 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's the meaning of Luke 9, 62. No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. That's the meaning of the Apostle Peter's message in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, when he wrote, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. That's what the Apostle Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. I like the way the old King James Version says, God forbid. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? That's what he means in verses 12 through 14 of that same chapter when he wrote, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. I'm telling you that it is grace that teaches you to leave the sinful life. And it is grace that gives you the ability to leave the sinful life. That's why grace not only teaches us to leave the sinful life, but it also teaches you to lead the sanctified life. Paul writes to Titus in verse 12 that grace is working, here it is, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. That's the negative. Then he goes on and says in the positive, instructing us to live sensibly and godly, or righteously and godly in the present age. If you're going to live the grace life that Jesus would have you live, you're going to lead the sanctified life. You're going to lead it, first of all, with regard to yourself. Paul says, with regard to yourself, live sensibly. Some translate that word soberly. It means with self-restraint, self-control. It means with a sound mind, clear-headed. It means to get your thinking straightened out. It means to stop your stinking thinking. If you're going to live sensibly, you're going to adjust your thinking to reject the false narrative of this world, and you're going to bring your thoughts into alignment with the truth of God's word. You're going to stop living by your feelings, which are fickle. You're going to stop living by your circumstances, which are constantly changing. You're going to start living by what thus says the Lord. See, it, it just doesn't make any sense for people who have been made new creations in Jesus to continue living like the old creation they used to be. <laughs> when a caterpillar transforms into a butterfly, he doesn't go back to crawling along the branch eating leaves. His behavior now reflects the new creation he has become. Live sensibly. 
live according to what God says about you. God says you're no longer a sinner, you're a saint, so live like it. God says you're no longer a stranger, you're a fellow citizen of the household of faith. God says you're no longer in bondage, you're free in Jesus. God says you're no longer defeated, you're more than a conqueror. God says you're no longer dead, you're alive. God says you're no longer lost, you're found. God says you're no longer on the road to hell, you're on the highway to heaven. It's time somebody began to reject the lies of the enemy of your soul. It's time to erase all the old recordings that keep playing in your mind about how destitute and how bad you really are. It's time to make some new recordings that are the truth of God's Word about who you are in Jesus now that you are a recipient of the grace of God and are born again in the Spirit. This sanctified life has to do with self-restraint. Last Sunday after the service, Larry Gillespie reminded me of a study that was done with four-year-olds in the preschool at Stanford University during the 1960s by psychologist Walter Mischel. That study became known as the Marshmallow Test. In that study, are you familiar with the any of it? Some of you know. Okay. In that study, for those of you that don't know, each child was brought into a room and given one marshmallow. They were told they could eat it immediately, or if they waited until the researcher returned in 20 minutes, they could have two marshmallows. Four-year-olds. Some kids just couldn't wait. They gobbled down the marshmallow immediately. The rest struggled hard to resist eating it. Some of them covered their eyes. They talked to themselves, they sang, they played games, even tried to put their head down and go to sleep. Well, the preschoolers who were able to wait were rewarded with two marshmallows when the researcher returned. 12 to 14 years later, the same kids were re-evaluated. The differences were astonishing. Those who had been able to control their impulses and delay gratification as four-year-olds were more effective socially and personally as teenagers. They had higher levels of assertiveness, self-confidence, trustworthiness, dependability, and a superior ability to control stress. Their scholastic, this one got me, their scholastic aptitude tests, their SAT scores, were all 210 points higher than the instant gratification group. One of the conclusions of this experiment was that a key difference between successful people and those who struggle to get by is self-discipline. Now, the biblical understanding of self-control is not you controlling yourself. Self-control in the Bible is not ruling yourself by force of will. Instead, it is allowing yourself to be ruled by Jesus. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, the Bible says that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. It is the control of self by the empowering of the Holy Spirit. It is self in control by the Spirit of God. 
Self-control, living sensibly, has little to do with the temptations or the difficult circumstances you're in. It has to do with your willingness to trust Jesus for the strength to do things right. The sanctified life says in regard to yourself, live sensibly. Then it says in regard to others, live righteously. Living righteously means that you have a different set of attitudes from the world around you. You have a different set of beliefs. You have a different set of values. You have a different moral compass. See, the people of this world are clawing their way to try to get to the top. But you're looking to be a servant. The people of the world are seeking the spotlight. But you're humbling yourself and putting others ahead of you. The people of the world are busy looking out for number one. But you're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The people of the world are willing to cut corners to gain an edge. But you're a person of integrity that just won't compromise the truth. The people of the world are backstabbing. But you're encouraging. The people of the world are grumbling, but you're praising. The people of the world are fearful, but you're confident. The people of the world are always striving to get more, but you're content. When you live righteously, it means you don't buy into the morals of the culture when those morals of the culture are in opposition to the Word of God. That's about to get real up in here for a moment. When the culture accepts as a matter of course that two people will be sexually intimate outside the commitment of marriage, the person who lives by the Spirit will follow God's plan and God's word and abstain and remain sexually pure for the marriage bed. When the culture makes it easy to bail out of a relationship because you are, quote, incompatible, whatever that means. I think we're all incompatible, by the way. You will hang in there and work it out because God's plan is that the marriage vow binds one man and one woman and that union endures until they are parted by death. When you live righteously, it means that you yield yourself to the control of the Spirit of God so you are no longer controlled by the appetites and desires of the flesh. It means that you keep looking intently into the Word of God to see His plan and His purpose and His will for your life. It means you lean on the arm of His Spirit for enabling power to live as He's called you to live. It means you fall heavily on His grace to support and sustain you. It means you believe in Him implicitly, even when the way before you is impossible to see. When you live righteously, I want to tell you, life isn't miraculously going to become a bed of roses. Problems aren't going to dry up and blow away. You're going to encounter trials and temptations and spiritual battle after spiritual battle. Now, aren't you encouraged? 
But the person who lives righteously isn't going to be shaken regardless of what foul winds may blow because you don't live by fear. You don't live by feelings. You don't live by circumstances. You don't live by opinion polls. Instead, you live by a higher calling. You live by a better way. You live by one thing that's going to see you through, let come by what may. You live by faith in the unchanging, unshakable word of the Lord. That's the way you live. With regard to yourself, the sanctified life says to live sensibly. With regard to others, the sanctified life says to live righteously. Then with regard to God, the sanctified life says to live godly. This is just the reverse of the ungodliness that we saw in verse 12. At every turn, you say no to the world and yes to God. It means you live by Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. I have, I have, oh, I've got to hurry. I need to tell you that grace not only teaches to leave the sinful life and to lead the sanctified life, but it also teaches to look for the Savior's light. In verse 13, Paul writes to Titus, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. See, one of the things that ought to immediately set apart the child of God from the child of this world is the hope that you have. It's the hope of an expectation of a glorious future. Everything you do ought to be measured against eternity. Everything you do ought to be colored by the fact that you have heaven in your heart. See, I, I don't know why people are getting so upset. Why, why, are we so, why are we so uptight about what's going on in this world? See, if you're looking for the glorious appearing of the return of the Savior, then you're not going to be nearly as concerned about accumulating an earthly fortune as you are about laying up treasures in heaven. If you live with heaven in your heart, then you're not going to grieve like the rest of the world grieves. See, they don't have any hope in the future. But when you have heaven in your heart, then you know that death isn't the final curtain. It's just the end of the first act. Death isn't a wall, it's a doorway. Death isn't the end, it's an entrance into a new beginning. <laughs> if you're looking for the Savior's glorious return, then you're not going to be shaken by the dramatic changes that are going on in global climate. You're not going to be anxious about wars that break out. You're not going to get bothered by a virus that ravages the globe. Because you're going to know that these things are nothing more than the birth pangs that are announcing the greatest event this world has ever known, the return of the Lord Jesus. Listen, if you're looking for the appearing of the Savior in glorious splendor, you're not living for the applause of men. You're living so that one day you can step into the presence of the eternal Lord and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. 
And you're not going to get upset when the policies established in the public arena make you uncomfortable because those policies violate God's law. Because you're going to understand that this is natural. You're not like the rest of the world. You are different. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. You're a citizen of another country. This world is not really your home. You're a pilgrim and a stranger who seeks a far better land. Your hope isn't in the politicians or in the economists or in social justice or in a vaccine or in anything mankind can produce. Your hope is that one of these days a shout will come forth from heaven and the trump of God will sound and the dead in Christ will be raised and then those followers of Jesus who are alive on this earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Oh, praise be to God. Oh, hallelujah. On the resurrection morning, when all the dead in Christ shall rise, I'll have a new body. Praise the Lord, I'll have a new life. Sown in weakness, raised in power, ready to live in paradise. I'll have a new body. Praise the Lord, I'll have a new life. Glory, glory, never sad. There'll be no more sorrow, no more pain. There'll be no more strife. In his likeness, I'll be glad. I'll have a new body. Praise the Lord, I'll have a new life. Hallelujah. Well, I appreciate you letting me get that out of my system. I feel so much better. Listen, listen, listen. every time there's, a, you know, lately, the last, the last couple of weeks or so, every afternoon, like clockwork, we've been having thunderstorms roll in. Have you noticed that? Every time there's a thunderstorm, it ought to cause you to look up expecting the return of the Lord. You know why? Because of what Jesus said in Matthew 24 and 27. He said, for just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. I often wonder if one of those lightning strikes just might be, it just might be, look for the Savior's light. Look for the Savior's light. It just might be the return of the Lord. Well, this is what grace teaches. Leave the sinful life, lead the sanctified life, look for the Savior's light. And finally, grace teaches us to live the servant life. In verse 14, Paul writes, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Here it is, zealous for good deeds. Zealous for good deeds. That means you aren't just sitting around on your blessed assurance waiting for Jesus to come. But while you're waiting, you're working. You're finding needs and meeting them. You're serving and caring and listening and actively pursuing the good of someone else. You're demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit by being the hands and feet of Jesus. Listen, the best way to serve Jesus is to serve others. And the servant's heart comes as a direct result 
a direct work of the Spirit of grace in your life. There's a story of the testing of a candidate for missions work. One snowy morning at 5 o'clock, a missionary candidate rang the bell at a missionary examiner's home. Ushered into the office, he sat three hours past his appointment time waiting for his interview. At 8 o'clock in the morning, a retired missionary appeared and began his questioning. The examiner began the interview by asking, can you spell? Rather mystified, the candidate answered, yes, sir. All right, spell Baker. B-A-K-E-R. Fine. Now, you know anything about numbers? The examiner continued. Yes, sir, something. Please add two plus two. Four, replied the candidate. That's fine, said the examiner. I believe you have passed. I'll tell the board tomorrow. At the board meeting, the examiner reported on the interview. He said, he has all the qualifications for a fine missionary. First, I tested him on self-denial, making him arrive at my home at 5 in the morning. He left a warm bed on a snowy morning without any complaint. Second, I tested him on promptness. He arrived on time. Third, I examined him on patience. I made him wait three hours to see me. Fourth, I tested him on temper. He failed to show any anger or aggravation. Fifth, I tried his humility by asking him questions that a seven-year-old child could answer. And he showed no indignation. So you see, he concluded, I believe the candidate meets the requirements. He will make the fine missionary we need. I tell you, there is a world watching to see how those who claim to follow Jesus will live. Are you living in such a way that you can't tell any difference between you and a non-believer or a non-follower of Jesus? Or are you learning the lessons grace is teaching in the school of life? Are you living the grace life? Grace isn't just for saving. Grace is for schooling. Teaching you to leave the sinful life. Lead the sanctified life. Look for the Savior's light and live the servant life. That's the difference this world needs to see in those who claim to follow Jesus. My time is up. I want to pray with you today. I, I especially want to pray for two groups of people. First, I want to pray for you who haven't yet surrendered your life to Jesus. You're not saved. Whether you're in this sanctuary or whether you're part of our online congregation. I can't think of a better time to get right with God than today. If you're ready to surrender your life to Jesus, this is your time. And then I want to pray for you who have drifted. Right now, there's not much difference in your life and the life of the person of this world. While I've been preaching this message, the Holy Spirit has brought to your attention someplace where you've strayed. 
don't ignore the voice of the Spirit as He speaks to you. If you need to repent, change your thinking, change what you're doing, change the direction you're going. This is your time. Let's bow together, shall we? Oh, Lord, thank you for the grace that has been extended to us. Undeserved, unmerited, and yet you freely give it. It's first of all, Lord, saving grace. And so I'm praying for that person right now who is away from you. They're not saved. I pray that you'll give them the courage to surrender their heart and their life to you, Lord Jesus. I pray, oh Lord, that nothing, nothing will hinder them doing that. No lie of the enemy, no deception will will stop them from turning to you in faith and trust as their only hope of salvation. Right now, Lord, we don't ask for a feeling, we don't ask for a sign. We just make up our mind that we'll surrender to you. And thank you, Lord, that your grace is not only there for saving, but it's there for schooling. And you're teaching us, you're teaching us those things that we need to know. And you've even in this message revealed places where where we've drifted. It's not that we've intentionally turned away from you, Lord. We've just drifted. We've, We've turned aside. So I just ask now, that you'll receive us as we come back to you and that grace will work in our lives to transform us and to help us and to keep us on the path that you've laid out for us. I thank you for doing that, Lord. I believe you for that. Once again, Lord, we're not asking for signs or feelings. We're just making up our mind we're going to follow you. And as we do, I pray that the Holy Spirit will come alongside us and give us the grace that we need to be able to make it. We pray these things in the only name that matters, the wonderful name of Jesus.